Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. All right, so today we're talking about shiny objects, sexy ideas, and fads in management. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have no idea what that was, but yeah, (laughs) we are talking about some of these things that we see out there in the world of management, and we're going to talk about what management fads are and how to spot them. We're going to talk about this idea of novelty bias, what it is and how it plays out. And we're going to talk about some ways in which people, leaders, and organizations can make some better decisions in light of the shiny objects, sexy ideas, and fads in management that are out there. Yeah, the we love something new is what this kind of is about. But first, we want to refer to this uh, Miller and Hartwick article from 2002 called Spotting Management Fads. So what are management fads? Now, nine times out of 9.5 times out of 10, non-scientifically, anecdotally speaking, any business management book you'll find on the shelf at an airport newsstand is gonna fall into one of these. But <laughs> but ben, that's, pro- that's right. Yeah. So you're talking about this Harvard Business Review article. Back from 2002. So it's a little old, but you know what? It's still good. It's still relevant. Wait, were you looking for a management fad article about (laughs) management fads? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's another thing that hacks me off is people like to, uh, you know, poo-poo ideas just because they came out, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. You know, there's a lot of great things out there. You know, as I get older, gravity is an old fad I'd like to get rid of. (laughs) (laughs) But in this article, this is from the Harvard Business Review. uh, The authors, uh, Danny Miller and John Hartwick, talk about some different ways in which we can identify management fads. And they do a good job, I think, of putting some definition uh, around this whole idea of a management fad. So the first thing is that, you know, management fads or fads in general are simple. There are these things that are easy to understand. Uh, you know, they kind of resonate with our common sense and they, they're just things that we, we think can, uh, you know, make a big difference in our, in our easy to do. Right. Yeah. And, and lots of times when we go into a managing um, into a management consulting gig, you know, we we're coaching somebody we're, we're trying to teach them. And, you know, the progress or process that I learned from jazz was like, imitate, assimilate, innovate. And so when somebody's lost in the sauce and can't figure out what to do, they're like, man, just tell me what to do. And so when you have a book that just like, Hey, listen, you got problems. Look at these three companies that had problems. All they had to do was squirt some Windex on their elbow and do these two easy tricks and ta da success. And they get a promotion. You know, it's those kinds of prescriptive, easy methodologies hijack our brain because we mm-hmm. we want to see some hope. But it's not bad. I don't think it's bad to start off, now that you can't end there, in a prescriptive manner. Right, right. Yeah, just, just because something is simple doesn't mean that it's bad. But fads do have that quality of being something very simple. They are also falsely encouraging and they promise some sort of outcome that is great and is very positive and 
It's going to make my employees more productive and more motivated, and it's going to give us, you know, more profit and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, they they oftentimes will um, kind of make the mistake of assuming uh, causation when there isn't some, right? So they'll use maybe a case study that says this happened in, <clears throat> you know, this company, and then they had great profits. Well, you know, it's probably a little bit more complicated than that in reality, but fads are falsely encouraging in addition to being simple. Right. And a lot of these pop business books have nice stories. I'm thinking about Goldratt's book, The Goal. And um, that's all about the theory of constraints. Theory of constraints is super important for planning out any manufacturing facility, but they always have this strange story. You know, Tommy, the business executive, was having a hard time in his relationship at home. And it creates an encouraging thing. It's important. Like, it's emotionally important mm -hmm. to be encouraged. But anybody that's promising you a golden, silver, whatever gold bullet that will get you done, uh, that's not likely to be true, right? Right. So another quality that management fads tend to have, according to this article, in addition to being simple and falsely encouraging, is that they are one-size-fits-all. Uh, that they suggest that they, these are universal rules and principles. Now, there are some universal rules and principles out there, so don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, I think that most people will, for example, resonate well with supervisors who care about people's well-being and value their contributions. But, uh, you know, they, they kind of say that you can do something, you know, something was done in one company and it can be easily transplanted into another. Not necessarily the case. Yep, that's right. And the, the next one after that is in tune with the zeitgeist. And for people that don't know what zeitgeist is, who do not know what zeitgeist is or speak German, that's like the the angst of the times, mm -hmm. you know, the stuff, the pop stuff that's going on right now that has to do with, and I don't think this is a bad thing, zeitgeist isn't necessarily bad, uh, but like minority issues in the workplace, um, Black Lives Matters, some of those kinds of things. So right now, if you want to sell stuff to companies, if you're selling diversity and inclusion training, you know, there's a bigger amount of people to sell to. But if you mm -hmm. want to sell up something really vanilla, such as sprucing up somebody's quarterly or annual performance reviews, well, you know, that's just too old fashioned to be hip to get sold, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe, <laughs> uh, it, you know, so those things don't fall in the, the fad category. Another piece of, uh, you know, another criterion, if you will, that we can look at that'll help us spot management fads is that they're easy to cut and paste. Uh, you know, they are simple and easy to apply. You can kind of, you know, do kind of partial implementation with them and that's going to get you somewhere. So in addition to being in tune with the zeitgeist, uh, you know, and then another criteria here is that they are novel, but not necessarily radical. So they're, they get our attention. They make us uh, notice them because they are apparently novel or, and, and a lot of times they're just kind of packaged in a novel way. You know, it's, it's something that maybe is called something new. It's old wine in new wineskins. Um, you know, the more that I, I study um, management and organizational science, you know, you, you come across ideas that are sometimes packaged as new, but you know what? A lot of them kind of aren't that new. Uh, maybe it's an incremental uh, type of um, addition to our knowledge, very slight. 
But, you know, you go back and read some of the management classics and some of the really great organizational theory from from back in the day. And there's a fair amount of good knowledge and ideas and and I would say maybe even wisdom about how people organize and how the world works. Yeah, I think about what is it? Justin Sinek, start with why. And he had Simon, that's like Simon, Simon, Simon. So yeah. is it Simon Sinek or his last Simon, name? Simon Sinek. Yeah, Sinek. There you go. That guy. Start with why. And it's he's a good storyteller. It sucks you in. You're watching. It's one of the top Ted uh, videos ever. And you're like, and wow. we will not post a link to it in the show notes because no. if you haven't seen it, then I don't know. Yeah, you'll find so, it. You'll find it. But but he starts and he's like, there's a story about the Wright brothers and you're sucked in and Apple computers and wow. But in the end, he's like, guys, start with why you're doing something. I mean, that is not a landmark. <laughs> you know, I kind of want to go on a little bit of a rant here because you brought up a TED talk and I think the TED format, like there are some great TED talks out there. Don't get me wrong. I use some of them in my classes. I, I share them with people who I care about and want to share an idea with, you know, but that format of, you know, and the basic format, if you're not familiar with TED talks is that they are no longer than 18 minutes. Oftentimes they're much shorter than that. Maybe they're, you know, 10 or 12 or 14 minutes or, or so. Uh, and the idea is that you're sharing, you know, the idea is worth sharing that format lends itself to the novel. It lends itself to the, to the thing that can be packaged in a new way. Um, and I think it lends itself to sharing management fads in some ways, right? Not saying they're all bad, right? There's some great ones out there. Uh, but I think, you know, beware as you consume those. Knowing why you're doing something is not new. <laughs> and and yeah and he also says some stuff that's just not true about Pierpont langley in that video but we we won't go google it and see if you can find the falsehood about Pierpont langley and that but but this goes in so novel not radical starting with why and the way he tells it is amazing but you've been your brain has been hijacked by oratory techniques not radical new ideas for management. Yeah. And well, and, and you know, but here's the thing. If I can use some amazing uh, rhetoric to get you to um, maybe see the value in, in an idea that is worth uh, implementing, I don't think there's a whole lot that's wrong with that. Like, that's okay. Uh, but maybe if it's, you know, if it's just done for the sake of, of doing something new and getting a bunch of clicks on social media, I, I, I don't like that. I mean, generally, I grew up in the evangelical church. I've seen the best people. You know, Ted is basically evangelicalism for business and secular ideas. You mean like how they do their sermons? Yeah, exactly. The, you know, go to an evangelical church. Some of the better speakers will blow a lot of these Ted guys out of the water. They've had just more time for the crime, so to speak. But that that goes in with the other part, legitimized by gurus and disciples. Mm. And so, you know, well, who's the guru? He's the guy on stage with the mic. Or who's the guru? He's making the rounds, peddling his book. Because this is how the book promotion thing works. You go on to NBC, and the next time you're on CBS, and you make the circle, and the publisher and their agent knows how to put you online, and then you do a few podcasts, and then you speak at XYZ events, and you know you can push at least 400,000 copies of whatever. At a minimum. But if you're good, you could get a million plus, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, it's legitimized by the gurus, but also by the disciples. So the people who say, you know, 
uh, this, this is awesome. We've got to do this and, and everything like that. So, you know, um, I was actually talking with a, a very experienced uh, learning and development executive the other day. And, you know, she was telling me how, you know, they paid a bunch of money in a previous company to have someone come in and do uh, some presentation on or some workshop on the five dysfunctions of a team, which is the Patrick Lencioni right. stuff. And she was like, the guy was great, you know, in terms of his workshop and stuff, but the content was just vanilla garbage. It was not anything, you know, that actually was helpful. Um, and, and, you know, we can critique that that stuff at another time. There's probably some good there, some not so good. But, um, you know, we legitimize the stuff when we adhere to it and when we share it ourselves. Yeah, and I think we're looking for meaning. Go mm. into the same cubicle every day and the same stuff, and you have the same, like, okay, we had a good manager, but he got promoted, went to another company. Now we got a, a manager. He's not horrible, but he's not great. And and there's these structural problems in my organization. Or sometimes you have a director that's just, you know, helping on doing something good. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to change the world here. And we're looking, we're searching, we're questing. We're not satisfied with the status quo. Yeah. I think that's a net positive. But we pick up some deceptive baloney along the way in our quest for doing better. Well, and it reminds me of this time that I was asked to submit a proposal for a training program. And it was for a very large company. This company wanted, basically what they, they said, we're doing a lot of uh, um, some reorganization and we have a lot of people who are in a matrix structure. And if you're not familiar with what a matrix structure is, it's where you kind of have a functional leader that you report to and you also have a kind of a project leader that you report to so maybe you're the you're the hr business partner for global wealth management so you help out the global wealth management line leader to you know do stuff hr wise with that unit but you also report to the head of hr or the, someone you know in hr anyway uh it can be kind of confusing for that those people because you're you kind of in a sense have multiple bosses Right. There are some good reasons to do it, but it can be a little bit tricky. Anyway, this company said, hey, you know, we really we want to we want to have a, you know, a good session, a training on how to succeed in a in a matrix environment. And I'm like, all right, great. You know, it sounds sounds like a good idea. And in my conversations with them, it really became apparent that they wanted, you know, this like package deal that was going to solve all the problems of working in a matrix. Here's what the research tells us about working in a matrix. You know what solves working in a matrix? Good trust and communication. I thought you were going to say yeah. ending the matrix. <laughs> <laughs> if necessary. But no, it could, it could be a good idea. But, you know, how sexy is it or unsexy, I shall say, to, to try to say, yeah, well, what you really need to do is you need to have uh, good trust and communication. So let's have a, a session all about that. That's not what they were looking for. They really wanted something that was going to be a silver bullet that then they could report up. Say, yeah, we got the people this training. It's going to make make them awesome working in a matrix. So um, just beware of those types of things. So just to recap all of these different ways in which you can spot management fads, drawing upon this this great uh, little HBR article back in the day is that fads are simple. They are prescriptive. They are falsely encouraging. They are one size fits all. They're easy to cut and paste. They are in tune with the zeitgeist. They are novel, not radical. They are legitimized by gurus and disciples. And those are some ways in which you can spot them. So if some, those, not all, some, not if all. That's how we can uh, spot those management fads. 
how can we look at the, what are some characteristics of, uh, you know, kind of classic management ideas? Yeah. So one of the ways that you can spot the classics is that they're old. So they're, so they're kind of like you, right? They just look yeah. for, they look for you. <laughs> if it, if it's all, if you want to have a bias, look for the book with dust all over it. No, um, <laughs> guys, the classics are the classics and it's normally not one person. There's not a magical person that I single-handedly discovered all of this. It's teams of teams of teams that build on this. Well, and oftentimes the, the classics are ones that actually demand actual organizational change in order to work, right? So if I said, yeah, what you, what you need to do in this organization is to have better trust and communication, well, what's that going to require? That's going to require probably some some significant uh, you know, evaluation and potentially uh, reorganization and uh, training of your supervisors. It's going to require a long-term effort to deliver upon what you're get, you know, promising to your employees. Like that's how you build good trust and communication. So these are ones that take a long time sometimes and they act, but they actually have lasting effects. Like that's when, when you and I go and look at an organization that's having an issue, we are looking for what's actually going to make a difference here. Not what's going to, you know, be something that checks your box in terms of your training budget or, you know, something that necessarily is is just um, a sexy idea. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of like marriage advice or music. Well, how do you play music awesomely? Well, learn all your chord scales and arpeggios and combine them in infinitely creative ways that are entertaining. Oh, that's it? No, no problem. How do you keep a marriage together or have a successful marriage? Well, you got to be good communicators. You've got to. Okay. That's. You know, like, what do you need to sustain life as a human? Well, oxygen's important, but that doesn't tell you about the complexity. Okay, good communication. How do we instill those norms? How do we, what does good communication look like? These are the place, that's where the magic is. Mm -hmm. The magic's in the old. The classic ideas, I'm a big believer in the Western canon and, you know, all these books that built Western civilization. I don't know enough about all the literature in the East yet, you know, so, but the, all that magic is under the hood. And these lessons are the term, you know, that we use, our friend Mike use, these terms are ever green. Mm -hmm. Like, when do you stop teaching your kids about being a good citizen? Never. <laughs> but every generation has to renew those same lessons, right? So just because you become a communication guru and you're a CEO now, what about the next generation of CEOs? The kid just coming out of high school or college is starting work. They've got to learn these same evergreen lessons. So we do have like maybe a one, 2% that's new, that's really adding to the conversation. But right. probably the 98, 99% is just the good old, good old. Right. So if we go back to this article, just to kind of wrap up this section, um, talking about how you can spot management fads, uh, the authors of this HBR article, and again, we will post a link to this in the show notes, um, they suggest asking a couple of questions. Number one, does the approach have a track record for performance and measurable outcomes in similar companies facing similar challenges? And, and I think that that's important, right? Similar companies facing similar challenges, because sometimes we'll read something that's a completely different area. And it's like, oh, well, that would work perfectly in my organization. Well, maybe not. Question number two, does it address problems or opportunities that are high priorities for our company, Right. Or is it just a shiny object? You know, sometimes you'll have a CEO. Sometimes you'll have a general. Sometimes you'll have an admiral. 
who reads a book. No, no. <laughs> oh, no. Wait. Don't read books. <laughs> and We're like, say, we tell you to read books all the time. <laughs> unless you're an admiral, don't read one. <laughs> well, and, and, and I joke, of course, they should be reading books. But sometimes it'll be like, I read this one book about this one idea. And guess what? Everybody's going to read this book now. And this is the way we're going to do business. Probably not the best approach. Uh, the third question that they suggest you ask is, are the changes it would require within our company's capabilities and resources? So could we actually do this? And if you can answer yes to those questions, then you probably have an approach that will pay off and actually endure and not just be a, a, you know, a, a fad or a, you know, just an idea within your organization. Yeah. So this idea is, you know, does it, has this worked in my particular organization for an organ? You can't publish something in the popular press because they'll say it's too narrow in scope. And so a lot of these things are so big. Oh, look at this widely obtuse things. Well, and you know, we all oftentimes say in academia, which uh, I, I think is, is a nice, it, it makes us feel better. I hope it's true. I think it is true. Uh, but we oftentimes say, and this is quoting the, uh, the organizational theorist and, and uh, scholar, Kurt Lewin. And he oftentimes would, is quoted as saying, there is nothing so practical as a good theory, Right. Because people like to say the academics are all about theory and not. Well, you know what? If you yeah, have some, we are. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> if you have some good principles and some good theories about how organizations work, then you can apply those broadly, and that works. And that can help your organization. It can help your teams be more successful. So we've talked about how you can spot some of these management fads, um, and now. Um, I guess we could, what are some, I guess, what are some fads you've seen or some that we've seen in recent years? Yeah. And let's even use some of the criteria from that article mm. to look at these. So uh, open office layouts. Oh yeah. This, and this, so the idea here is that you don't have anybody in closed door offices. You just kind of take away, you know, bust down the little barriers between the cubicles. Everyone's kind of in an open area. And uh, I mean, it, it's relatively simple, right. To use some of those criteria. It's, um, it, it's supposed to, right? So um, it's supposed to solve your communication and collaboration issues because everyone's all kind of together. <laughs> now, now they're just going to magically collaborate with each other a lot. Um, it's kind of in tune with the the zeitgeist of of more egalitarian types of workforces and things like that. Rather uh, than change ourselves, <laughs> let's change the furniture. <laughs> That's it. That's what we should do. Except, except Everett. He, we're going to keep him in office because he's a loud talker. He doesn't work well in an open office layout. <laughs> this, is, this is true. This is true. Yeah, yeah that's, that's absolutely the case. So op, open office layouts, like it, it, it can be a decent idea in some, depending on the people and the type of work they do, but it's not, and you know, oftentimes, or at least when this first kind of idea kind of came out, you know, people were, were using it as a one size fits all. And it is not right. Um, one of the better organizations that I was around once, uh, they, they took some of these ideas and had some of their areas be open office, but then they also had some that were closed and they had some little cube, some little rooms that you could go into and they're actually soundproof. You go in there and you work by yourself if you wanted to, if you didn't want any noise, right. Or if you wanted a little private meeting with some people, you could, you could use one of those rooms. So kind of having that. Do you want to scream options. profanities about your boss and the, ah! Ah! <laughs> yeah. but this, this was a thing. Everybody spent a lot of money changing it, and then they changed back. This was the same stuff on work from home. 
Mm-hmm. Now, work from home is working great for some people now, but some of the initial data was send everyone home. Mm-hmm. Well, quick, bring them all back. Our productivity is horrible. And then they're like, well, some people could work from home better. Some people actually need to be in-person collaborate. Uh, maybe they need tools. This is not an easy, hey, just do this. Your magic will happen. Right. 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 Exactly. You know, another uh, fad or, or something that was done particularly by General Electric back in the days of Jack Welch was having forced rankings in your performance appraisals. So what that means is that, you know, a certain number of people have to be at the top, a certain number of people in the middle, a certain number of people at the bottom. And then those people at the bottom, they periodically get uh, sent to seek employment elsewhere or or some other uh, horrible career move, right? So um, you know, that idea doesn't really hold if you're thinking about, well, what if I actually have a team where everybody actually is awesome? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have this force ranking. But anyway, so that's something that, that was kind of a fad for a little while. Um, and the people loved it because Jack Welch, look at him. He looks look so him. awesome in a suit. He's standing there. He's not taking crap from anybody. You're fired. You know, this kind of stuff. And, and people <laughs> lionize that. This is somebody who's serious, who's getting stuff done. But most of his management stuff that was lauded in the popular business press, which don't go to the popular business press for how somebody's doing. It's garbage. Uh, They just want to sell clicks and ads. Um, But it has been debunked as by actual organizational scientists as not being good. Right, right. Speaking of debunking. All the stuff on generational differences. This is one of our favorite punching bags. You got to listen to that episode. Yeah, if you haven't listened to it, listen to it after this one. Yeah, we've got a great episode with Court Rudolph all about um, debunking the myth of generational differences. And this was the idea that, you know, millennials and Gen Zers and whatever other ways we want to label large groups of the population in terms of age cohorts, uh, that they are fundamentally different in how they approach work and life and and that we must manage them differently. Um, yeah, it's garbage. I, I mean, I remember back, so this really started to kind of um, come to the forefront, kind of in like, you know, 2008, nine, uh, people were really starting to make money off of this because people were like, how do we manage these millennials? And well, let's hire somebody who specializes in it. And people were, I mean, there were even like some academics getting in on this game and, and it just, it wasn't supported by the data, right? Um, that this people wanted necessary. to pay money to hear that their sentiments of those whippersnappers <laughs> it's, yeah. it's right. That's what yeah. they... <laughs> I mean, that's like the ultimate confirmation bias that oftentimes happens with the purchasing of consulting services is like, I'm the boss. I want someone to come in here and just basically say all the stuff that I say all the time, but, it, but instead it's coming from, you know, the consultant in the suit. So maybe people will listen to it. Right. So I can tell the people that report to me in my organization told you, you should have listened to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. So another management fad, and I'll, you can handle this one is the whole idea of agile transformations. Yeah. So first of all, agile comes from extreme programming and other stuff. Uh, it's a re it's a novel repackaging of stuff that already existed. Now there's some stuff we've added to it out of the technology space because we're able to rapidly innovate product because we just changed some lines of code and we don't actually, we're not making something physical. But the the idea of, this is like the new process reorganizing stuff. It's okay. There's good stuff there, but there was a time where there's all these gurus in the agile world. You must be agile. 
bro, do you even scrum? You know, all this stuff over, 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 over. Meanwhile, you got these dried, crusty management professors and industrial organizational psychologists like Ben are like, what are they talking about? Oh, they just put a different name on this thing that already existed 30 years ago. Yeah. They yeah. just, you know, and these are the so, things. So, sounds like good teamwork and maybe, uh, you know, using some novel ways to manage projects. Awesome. Yeah. And, and these are good things. Sometimes you got to put a new sheen on, you know, my dad's yeah. action figure GI Joe's look different than the kids action figure GI Joe's now, but at the end, there's still an action figure GI Joe, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it brings up an interesting point. Like, you know, if you package something in a new way or, you know, it's a good idea and you put some, uh, you know, put some shine on it and it gets adopted by the organization, you know, is that necessarily bad? Probably not. But uh, you know, I think go back to some of those questions that we were posing about how to really, you know, determine whether or not it's a good approach. Uh, another one is, you know, the the four day work week. We actually addressed this in a previous episode, you know, which is, yeah, yeah having flexible work schedules good. Or, you know, our favorite is, you know, what Tim Ferriss calls the four hour work week, right? So he had that whole book on the four hour work week. I think we should write a book on the three hour work week. Or, or hey, get born to somebody rich and be a trust fund baby work week. You know, why work? Just ski <laughs> and play hockey all day. You know what? <laughs> it's like, be wealthy, don't work. There, there's there's there, a good plan. There's a plan. Hey, that's that's good work if you can get it, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. But it, I mean, it plays, it's preying on people who are like, oh my God, my job stinks right now. And rather than taking finding fulfillment or creating better workplaces, work environments, we try to give some easy, you know, outsource all your work to, you know, virtual assistants in India, and then you can work only two hours publishing fake books on Amazon or something. You know, mm -hmm. I get it. I mean, this is the same stuff that multi-level marketing preys on people. Hey, sell essential oils or, you know, Mary Kay makeup so you can dictate your own, the mommy blog movement. Right. You know, my wife was like, maybe I could just blog. And I was like, man, that is so awesome that my wife wants to be with my kids so much that she's willing to try to figure out a business model to make a living as a blogger. So but you see how it preys mm -hmm. on these just base level things that are honorable, that are good. But the real solution is making a world that's worth living on, not looking for a panacea. Sure. All right. So we've talked about what are management fads and how to spot them. Let's talk about this idea of novelty bias and how it plays out. So this is a, a cool idea. Um, I would say it, it's it's not necessarily you know a novel idea in and of itself, but it, it is this idea that we have a proclivity to um, to hail, to laud, to exalt new things at the expense of things that are successfully historical. And, and you came across some interesting stuff from medicine on this, I think. Yeah. So. I worked at this golf club at, at, down in Huntsville, Alabama, when I was in high school. And I talked to this guy. He was a rep for a medical device company. They sold hips, replacement hips. And hmm. so I was talking to him about sales because I had done some sales in college. And this was during a summer that I came home from college because uh, my mom made me. And, and I was asking him, I said, so this year's hip, is it better than last year's hip? And he's like, no, not statistically, but we'll bring a bunch of studies up and talk about it because people like, hey, this is this year's hip. Mm. Now, if you're getting a hip replacement. I want do you this want, year's hip. You, you don't want last year's model. You want this. No. You want to be hip? 
with this year's hip, right? <laughs> and and that was like this thing, right? Where we want the newer thing. If we go to buy, if there's two packages on the shelf and one's covered in dust and the older package, and there's a newer one without dust, we grab the newer package. That sunscreen's yeah. probably old or something, right? Now, I would say that the, this is, you should probably go for the newer things when it comes to perishable food products. That's probably Def- a good time definitely. to use to use the, the novelty bias. But uh, yeah, so I mean, we we definitely have this proclivity towards, you know, wanting the new. And um, I would suggest that just be aware of that and be cautious and ask yourself the question, if you come across something, do, am I wanting this just because it's new, right? Um, now, there are some things that have been, for, when we get back to kind of the world of work and management, there are some items that we have a great body of knowledge around, right? I mean, we we know some things about some stuff. Yeah. So one of the, if you asked IO Psych, what, what's the most known thing within that field? They're going to say like hiring and selection, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's been a ton of research on that. There have been people, you know, uh, researchers who have said, hey, by the way, you know, let's stop researching this. We, 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 we that, that lawn is mowed. Um, you know, things like performance appraisals, how to construct good surveys. Uh, you know, and, and I'm biased in terms of, um, you know, the, the world of industrial and organizational psychology, which is oftentimes, I think rightly so, sometimes uh, criticized for being hung up on things that we can measure, but we like measurement. Um, but then other things like job attitudes, like we know a lot about job satisfaction and we know a lot about perceived organizational support being this idea that, you know, when we feel like our organizations care about us as people and value what we do, we're going to there's all kinds of great benefits there. Um, you know, the idea of justice and fairness perceptions like that, that influences a lot about how we work and how we think it, within our workplaces, you know, um, things about leadership. We, we know quite a bit about leadership. We know quite a bit about organizational culture and climate. So. You know, there are some things that we do, do know a lot about, and I would just be cautious when you see things that potentially are saying that there's a whole lot new in those areas. The complete new paradigm of leadership. You can get it now <laughs> only at my course at the Holiday Inn's buffet line. You know, these yeah. are the things, you know, and what I notice is something new, something never nobody had seen before. And I'm mm-hmm. like, really? Can we sue that? Or is that just marketing puffery? Um, I, dis- I discovered Yes. One of the things that's being done a lot, and I think it's the payment APT or ADT, the payment people mm. use Clifton's strengths finders, mm-hmm. it, which is a big one, which there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, well, what are my strengths? And maybe sure. how can I build on those? But one of the things from the Harvard article is like have measurement and data. That guy will not turn over his data at all. So we're like, okay, so if you have this way to review people for their performance or what kind of jobs they should be in, all this kind of stuff, you could turn over your data, right? No. Yeah. Well, I mean, there may be various reasons why why they might not be inclined to turn over their data. Well, yeah, yeah. copyright and stuff. Right. But it's hard, it's hard to put. Let's to say evaluate. he does have something that could go in into IO Psych's pantheon of we really know this stuff. In the strength finders information. Yeah, but that's not going to make me lots of money. I know. And and that's where we're trying. <laughs> we're trying to cut against that, guys. Right. These fads are about repackaging the best ones, repackaging good, evergreen, perennially mm-hmm. known management and leadership into some kind of package that they can sell you and that you'll feel good about buying. Yeah. You know, and I think the big 
a big takeaway here is that there are plenty of things that you can do as a leader, that you can do as a manager in your organization to make it better without necessarily doing the novel stuff, right? You, you might, what, what's the purpose of doing something novel that might make some sort of uh, tiny improvement for a moment at some point um, when you have all kinds of things that are really wrong in your organization that you really should be fixing? So get those basics done right first before you start looking for the novel and for the shiny ideas. And boredom's not the, and if you talk to the Sherm guys, they know. They're like, well, hey, you got you get past 50 employees, you got to get a breastfeeding room. Hey, you got, they know all this stuff. But uh, HR professionals and some of these professionals get so tired of the basic. They take a new yeah. role at a big company and they're like, oh boy, now I got to do all the 101 stuff. And then when they go to these conferences, they do get excited about, well, this HR software has AI. Yeah. Machine learning AI. It's got all of it. And the, and a cup holder armrest. All the AIs. So and <laughs> and they want because they want to stretch themselves as individuals. But let's yeah, not natural. Yeah. Let's not let the sexy be the enemy of the tried and true, right? Exactly. Exactly. So we've talked about novelty bias, what it is and how it kind of plays out. Let's talk now about how we can have better decision making for people and leaders and organizations. And you know, a lot of the, the, so there is research on these ideas of, you know, fads and management fads and fashion. And a lot of them uh, will mention consultants and they'll talk about the role of consultants in the, the propagation of these different management fads. And, um, but, you know, I, we will also come to the defense of consultants because I think they do play a, an important role. Um, of course, we do some consulting ourselves, but um, you know, the, the, the scholarly research does suggest that there's a great role for them. So we'll post a link to another great article. This was a management research review um, called Management Consulting, a review of 50 years of scholarly research. Right. And so there, there's different roles that management consultants play. Mm -hmm. one, one is a change agent. You know, sometimes right. what's that phrase? A prophet in your own town. Right? right. The idea that everybody knows you. We we remember when you used to screw up your your uh, performance reviews as an early manager. Now you're a director and we don't really empower you to do something. But you brought in a third party who did an external analysis and all this kinds of stuff. OK, now we believe you about being a change. And lots mm. of time being that outside voice, that mirror on your organization. Consultants can be awesome change agents within your org. Sure, sure. And that, that's that's a good thing. Um, if if they are uh, doing things that are evidence based, if they have ideas that are not necessarily, you know, just fads in and of themselves, you know, another uh, role that management consulting firms can play is that they can be uncertainty agents so they can help people to, um, you know, manage the, the confusion that's going on in various aspects of the business environment, which is not necessarily bad either. Right. One of the benefits that Ben and I offer the organizations we come in to is that we've been under the hood of gobs of organizations, you know? So we know how other people in your industry and other industries are reacting to, say, the pandemic or, you know, a business cycle concerns or new legislation about how employees need to be treated. Like, these are things that we can help you manage that uncertainty. So if you do ever face risks, not just going concern risk, but legal risk, 
that you have a defensible, hey, listen, we reached out about this concern and we're applying industry best practices on how to address those things. Right. You know, and there's another piece from that article that I um, that I mentioned in Management Research Review, which I think is great with, with this idea of um, management consulting firms as uncertainty agents. And what they, they suggest is that, um, you know, management consulting firms should be judged, and I'm quoting here, on their help in organizing clients' firms and their ability to assess uncertainty, not to remove uncertainty. You know, it's not about coming in and saying, I have the solution to all your woes and I can solve everything in your organization. It's about saying, hey, I can help you unpack what's going on and deal with it. You know, there, it is an uncertain environment, but let's deal with this in an appropriate way. So it's kind of that um, process-based consulting that, that can be really powerful and helpful um, versus just, you know, painting over uncertainty, saying, well, you don't need to be worried about that. Or, or no, you do really need to be worried about this, and I'm going to sell you something to fix it. Yeah, watch out for those guys. There's a bunch of hucksters doing stuff. Um, the other one, then, is fashion setters. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is probably, I'm biased against this one as more of a minus than a plus. Mm -hmm. But um, it's not all bad. I can't tell you how many times, like, oh, well, have you read these books? Yeah, let's talk about those books. So here's a problem I have with this business book and why we reject it specifically in our consulting approach. Mm -hmm. And you'll get some wide eyes because, I mean, but that's why you hired us as consultants. You're not an IO psychologist. You're not mm -hmm. in bed in the literature of management. Like you came out of MBA, you started working your keister off to do good things. Now you're the CEO or VP of whatever, and you're going that a good consultant will help you wade through those things which are evidence-based and those that are just the trend of the day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's well said. So, you know, management consulting firms can fulfill those, those different roles. Um, you know, but I also think that, you know, good consultants are ones who can be those conduits for the good ideas, the good processes. Um, and also just some of those, you know, uh, business 101 basics that you were late to learn or forgot or just need to be reminded about. Yeah. So it, a common one that I do with execs when they first step up to P&L responsibility is we'll work through some budget basics for executives in a one-on-one -on -one coaching environment. And then we'll also understand like cash flow, you know, all these kinds of different items that they may have had a accounting 101, 102 course in undergrad, but now they're 55. And they're like, mm -hmm. now, oh, finally I have all this stuff and I'm gonna have to interact with the finance function of my organization. And and so like good consultants now, is that sexy and awesome? No, but that's gonna make a massive impact in how effective you are as a manager or an executive in your org. That's great. So another thing that you can do you know, with regard to, you know, evaluating ideas and so forth as a leader in an organization is, you know, first of all, be sure that you've actually identified the problem. Uh, and we come across this a lot when we talk to executives and they'll tell us, hey, I, I'm looking for some training, right? That, that's a red flag, right? Yeah, away. come do it's, project management training for my staff. Like, all right. Yeah. And, and maybe that is what they need. Maybe it is. But I think there you have to spend some time diagnosing before you treat. In the world of medicine, if you don't do that, if you treat without diagnosis, 
we call it malpractice. Well, there's a lot of managerial malpractice that happens. There's a lot of consulting malpractice that happens. So be sure you've actually identified the problem. If you need help identifying the problem, a good consultant could help you with that as well um, because that can put you on the right path. Yeah, these, but I can just see what the person that's selecting the vendor or consulting firm, they're like, yeah, you want to assess so you can add all this money to the project. <laughs> and and there are unscrupulous people yeah. that do that. But ways you can navigate that is insist on evidence-based approaches and ask for some literature that speaks to this. Get get the peer-reviewed journal articles from the consultants. Now, the guy that's just a fly-by-night out of his trunk of his car, you know, living in hotels all the time, just selling people stuff, isn't going to be able to provide that. Mm-hmm. But responsible consultants aren't, you know, they're not going to just bill you for something that's not going to help or work or that's not evidence-based. Right. Another thing you can do is this kind of goes back to some of those questions that we posed in these uh, with regard to spotting management fads, but you can ask yourself, is this something that will really produce lasting, meaningful change? And if it's just, for example, a, you know, one day workshop, or if it's just, for example, a training session that has no follow-up component to it or some tools and systems and processes that are going to make life different within your organization, then, you know, it might have limited impact. And you should look for those things that are going to make a real difference with regard to whatever problem you face. Yeah, so if you've got budget and you just have to do three trainings a year anyway, you know, it's just part of the deal. Well, you know, places like Google and and stuff bring in speakers on interesting topics. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you have people that will be doing the same job for their whole career. You know, they're a subject matter expert on something. And there's not like they don't want to be management or something. You can still bring in meaningful trainings and stuff that are one-offs, but they might be talk about interesting ideas. You can develop people's minds and curiosities um, through those kind of one-off sessions. But saying, hey, in two hours on a Thursday afternoon, can you completely change the culture of my organization? There's just no way, man. No Mm -hmm. way. Right. So beware of the overly easy universally applicable ideas because you know these just are not a substitute for actual thinking if it sounds too good to be true in terms of being a management uh intervention something that you can do to your organization well it it probably is yes um so that means multiple opinions mhm right yeah. so you know consultants will call crap on each other you know <laughs> Well, at least smart ones can call crap on the on the ones that are selling baloney. Yeah, yeah. And another thing you can do is if you're planning some sort of large-scale uh, change in your organization is have some sort of pilot or a test uh, with some clear um, success criteria so that you can evaluate whether or not this is working and maybe tweak it or revisit it before you, you know, spend a whole bunch of money on this one thing. Um, you know, if you really want something that's going to work, you want to make sure it's, it's, it's calibrated appropriately before you launch into it. And to remove another great item is forums. So if you're in HR, mm. there's some HR forums, uh, on the web. Sherm has some, there's some Facebook groups. You can reach out to other peers. So if you're not networked with your peers, um, you should be, you can get a lot of benefit. How should I think about designing a compensation program for a remote workforce? You know, 
people say, hey, these are maybe the three or four things you want to consider. These are people that are not trying to sell you something like a consultant would. Um, that can be really, really helpful. Because one of the things that we said earlier, Ben, was, hey, you're going to have to really think about what is the real problem here? Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't, I don't know how to think about that. Also fair. And you said a, a fad trend would just tell me what to do. Well, what you can do is interview some consultants. How should I think about doing some culture change within my organization? And just do a bit of a lunch and learn. And, and how should you think about that stuff? And okay, and what do those interventions look like? And you start to shape by using experts to help inform you. You start to shape the kind of thinking for what might work well for your industry and your organization at that time. That's well said. That's well said. Um, you know, I also think that you just want to be careful with in terms of, uh, you know, be disciplined in your approach, have values and ethics in terms of how you're approaching all of these different types of um, possible, you know, solutions, quote unquote, for your organization, because that will help guide you. Yeah. So these values and ethics. So let's talk about a practical way in which they guide things. You know, back in the day, the earliest MBA stuff was how many widgets can I crank out in an hour? Well, if Bob and Nancy can do 20 widgets an hour, their combined efforts, 40 widgets an hour. And the productivity metrics, numbers, numbers, get on the phone, turn out the widgets. And you can beat your employees to a pulp. Sorry, you can't go see your kid's soccer game ever. You know, these kinds of things. There is a pull between the data, the stuff we measure, and our human beings in our organizations. So if you want to increase productivity and that's your sole goal, well, what's that tell you about how you might do that with making sure that the people in your organization have a life worth living, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the thing that's going to guide you is not a bunch of consultants that are going to tell you a whiz-bang productivity goal or better leadership or something. These are going to be your ethics and your values and your discipline to stay to those ethics and values. Don't, yeah. don't abandon being a good person in search of profit. Right, right. Yeah, you know, as you were, you were talking about, um, you know, this approach towards management and the kind of the old way of just just beating people into submission and all about the numbers and everything, it doesn't work in the long run because you just burn people out. Um, so I think that's something to be aware of. Right, Ben. So bring us on home. What did awesome. we talk about today? Yeah, so, so today we talked about some of those shiny objects, some of those sexy ideas and fads in management. We talked about what are management fads and how to spot them using those different types of uh, ideas from the Harvard Business Review article we cited. Uh, we talked about novelty bias, what it is and how it plays out. And we talked about some ways in which we can make better decisions in organizations with regard to management solutions. Uh, so regardless of whether or not you're a, an individual contributor or a leader within the organization. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.